morning, Cornerstone. I'm Pastor Bill, and um, if you are new with us this week, we really are honored that you're here, and we hope that you will just enjoy the Lord together with us. This morning, I want to bring to a close our um, series of talks on Exodus, and to do that, we're going to do some time travel. So we're going to start out a week and a half ago, which was March 7th last week, or a week and a half back. Then we're going to bounce all the way back to 1450, more or less, um, B.C., um, three months after Pharaoh let the Israelites' um, slaves go. Then we're going to bounce forward to 33 A.D., and we're going to walk with Jesus on Palm Sunday. And then at the very end, I'm going to pull us back forward to today to see what it all means for us this Palm Sunday. So buckle up. We're going to do some time travel. Uh, start up a week and a half ago. Some of you know what happened to me on March 7th, and I'm going to try to get through this. My voice is going to waver a little bit. A um, week and a half ago, I was doing all my regular Wednesday appointments at the Boston Public Library, and, um, and I got to the end of one appointment. I started to not feel very good, and so I, um, I actually canceled my next appointment, and I sat and I tried to do some texts and tried to do some emails, and I just, I just really, I, I, I felt like this flu was coming over me that was really, really strong. So I called Marla and I said, you know, Marla, I'm getting really sick, and I've never gotten this sick this fast before. Um, I just want to let you know. I think I'm going to get home, but you might have to come and get me at the T-stop. And so, um, so, so we talked for a little bit, and then I walked from the library to the T. About halfway there, I, I just felt like I couldn't move. So I got to a, um, uh, a hotel lobby, and I sat down for like 10, 15 minutes. And then it... Then I realized that I better call Marla again because she's going to be worried about where I am. And so, um, so I called her again. And the, the best thing I did that day was I called my wife. Guys, remember that? <laughs> Sometimes the best thing you will ever do is call your wife. Um, Marla got, was concerned enough for me that she called our son, who's a nurse practitioner, and she said, Daniel, call your dad and figure out what's going on with him. So, um, so by the time Daniel got to me, I was on the T. And... Um, he said later that, I told you I was going to waver on this. I thought I told this enough time. He said later that within three sentences of talking to me, he knew that I was having a stroke. So he said, Dad, you got to get off the train. You have to call 911 right away. So at that point, um, I, was, um, I was at Wellington Station, made it off the train, went up the escalator, and then I couldn't walk much farther. And um, asked somebody to call 911. And... Um, and Marla, Daniel called Marla. She got over there right away. The ambulance showed up. Um, my blood pressure in the ambulance, catch this, 192 over 128. If you know anything, now what my son said, who's a nurse practitioner, and, and our future son-in-law is an ER nurse at the Cleveland Clinic, they got together and they said, your body did exactly what it was supposed to do. There was a blood clot in your brain, and your body sent up your blood pressure to blow that clot out. It's called a, a TIA, and um, I never knew what those were before. Um, but at one point in the hospital, um, shortly after they got me there, um, they were putting me in the, the CT scan. Um, later on, they did the MRI and a whole bunch of other things. But they were putting me in the scan, and I was still in the midst of this TIA. And, um, and it dawned on me that I might not make it through. And so as they were kind of putting this blanket on me and starting to put me in there, I actually had this talk with God. And I said, all right, God, 
I've had a really good life. If this is your time for me to go, I will trust you. And I really, I meant that. It was kind of hard, but I said, I will trust you. And then I said, but if it would be okay with you, (laughs) I would really like it if you give me another chance to keep loving the people that you've put in my life. So I did the CT scan and did a whole bunch of other things. Later on, I got put in the, um, uh, they put me in this, who's had MRIs? Anybody had MRIs? They put you in this little claustrophobic tube and leave you there for 45 minutes. It's, I think there's a picture. There. Looks sort of like that. <laughs> and, um, and Marla forewarned me, and she said, you know, this thing's not going to be fun. It's kind of claustrophobic. You better think of something you're going to think of in advance. And so I figured um, I'm just going to do my intercessory prayer list. If I know your name at Cornerstone, you probably got prayed for while I was in that machine. <laughs> um, so I'm... Um, Upshot of it is, brain MRI, my brain's fine. Um, when I went with the neurologist, he's like, well, we're looking for a clot right here. And I said, why there? And he says, well, that's right between, in, the, in your brain, that's right between the function that you lost in your mini stroke. And he said, do you see that right? Do you see what I'm looking at? I said, no, I don't see anything. He said, he said it's that there. He says, there's no, there's no clot. Brain was fine, echocardiogram was fine. I was, by the time I finished the MRI, I, they had, had me in this kind of, waiting bay of like four beds and um and i was out of it by then so much so i don't think i told you this um (laughs) so much so that i got a phone call and i thought oh i forgot i had that interview and i interviewed somebody who's interested in serving as children's ministry director while i was sitting in the bed after the mri so um i didn't tell her (laughs) what i was doing and where i was at that point all right it's a good idea i mean it's kind of normal and probably a really good idea that when we go through things like this that we actually stop and think, right? And ask ourselves some questions. Um, I, always, I always say to people, don't waste your pain. At least ask the Lord what he might want you to see. So I was thinking about it. Um, it took me about a week to recover. Um, and I was thinking about it at one point, and I thought, what, what an awesome God that he so often gives us another chance. And I was praising God for giving me another chance. And, um, and I thought, what is this God that we serve? He so continually gives us another chance and another chance and another chance. So we sin and mess up or we're foolish. And we go to him and we ask for forgiveness. And he restores us and he gives us another chance. And I realized that, that every, every relationship discussion that we have is another chance to touch somebody else's life. If it's a broken relationship, it's another chance for us to do something to fix that relationship. If it's a healthy one, it's another chance for us to do something to deepen that relationship. And then I realized the song that we sang a little bit earlier, I realized this week that every single day that we wake up is a gift from God of another chance to live the kind of life that will touch the world, that will love others, that will make the world a better place in Jesus' name. And so I thought, what is it about a God that would create a world that works like this to so continually give us another chance? And so um, um, Jeremiah says, his mercies are new every morning. I think that's part of what he means. Every morning is another chance. So let's time travel back now to 1450 B.C. Um, The um, Israelites have left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, 
they've now been in the wilderness, um, by the time to what we're talking about today, they've been in the wilderness for three months. And remember that we're talking about anywhere between 1.2 to 2 million people in the Exodus that Moses is leading to the promised land. And um, in the passage that we're going to look at today, we actually get an answer to the question of what kind of God would be a God who would continually give us a second chance. So think back to um, Exodus chapter 3. Um, remember Exodus 1 is Moses is born and he's put in the water and, and uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds him and he's raised in Pharaoh's household. Um, as he grows up and at one point he murders an Egyptian um, slave um, driver and then he, he flees. He uh, lives a fugitive life. And then in Exodus chapter 3, he is, um, he's a shepherd and he sees this burning bush that he goes over to see what it is. And in Exodus chapter 3, God calls Moses and says, I want you to fulfill your calling, which is to go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go, and then lead my people to the promised land. And Moses complained and bellyached and said he wasn't able to do it. And God says, yeah, you're still going to do it. And, and God condescends to some of his, his, um, his worries and his stresses. And Moses says, well, here's the thing, though. I can't do this unless you tell me what your name is because they're not going to know who I'm talking about. So you have to give me your name, which is, is in some way revealing of who you are. And that's when God gives Moses and the human race his name Yahweh, which is the God who is, who always is. And I don't know whether you remember, but way back as like a, a footnote to that episode in, in Exodus 3, God says this, when you come out, Moses, you will worship me on this mountain. All right, now, fast forward. People have crossed the Red Sea. They've left Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've been wandering for three months. And the Israelites are back at Mount Sinai, the same mountain where God gave Moses the name Yahweh. And um, if you, you were here last week, if you've been reading, then you know that in Exodus chapter 33, or leading up to Exodus 33, Moses goes up Mount Sinai, and he's there for 40 days with God, and God gives him the Ten Commandments and a bunch of other rules and regulations for how to be the covenant, the faithful people of God, and what God will do in response. And then um, Moses is coming down after 40 days, and remember what he finds? The Israelites have, have made a golden calf, an idol, and they are worshiping it, and they're running amok, and there's debauchery, and Moses gets so, so angry, he takes the tablets that God had written the Ten Commandments on, and he just throws them down the mountain, and they crack. And so the, there's a picture here of a couple Sunday school pictures, so that looks like a movie of Moses with the Ten Commandments. And this one, if you can't quite see it, but it's got the golden calf in the back. Um, but this week I came across this next one, and this is, this next one, this is Moses by Michelangelo. And Michelangelo said that he carved this. This is in a church in Rome called um, Peter of the Chains. And Michelangelo said he carved this picture of Moses from the description of Moses in, in Exodus 34. And then just so you see the next one, just for the fun of us, this is Moses and a different kind of tablets. <laughs> All right. So crashes down. God, um, I mean, he, God punishes the people. And then Moses is meeting with God, and God says, uh, sorry, I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel with you to the promised land, but I, these people are too stubborn. I'm not going. And Moses says, I don't want to go if you're not going. There's no way. And Moses 
mediates, as Pastor Hojin talked about. Um, he intercedes for the people and God relents. Well, just like back in Exodus chapter 3 where Moses says, give me your name so I got something that I can know I can hold on to. In Exodus 33, Moses says, then show me your glory. I, got, I need to, to make sure that you are going to go with us because I'm not going if you're not going. If you say you're going to go, show me your glory. Which brings us up to Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, because God says, yes, he will show Moses his glory. And then Exodus 34 is the story of the second time Moses goes up Mount Sinai to get the second set of tablets um, to, with the Ten Commandments. And so this is Exodus 34, 1 through 10. Then the Lord told Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. I will write on them the same words that were on the tablets that you smashed. A little dig there. You know those tablets you smashed? <laughs> I'll do it again. <laughs> the ones you smashed. Be ready in the morning to climb up Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. No one else may come near you, can, can, may come with you. In fact, no one is to appear anywhere on the mountain. Do not even let the flocks or herds graze near the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two tablets of stone like the first ones. Early in the morning, he climbed up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. And this is where, where God's going to show Moses his glory, and God's going to tell us in his own words the character, his own character, the character of a God who continually gives us second chances. So um, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses. And the Lord called out his own name, Yahweh, that name that he shared back at the burning bush, same mountain. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and grace. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately bowed his head to the ground and worshipped. And he said, O oh Lord, if it is true that I have found favor with you, then please travel with us. Yes, this is a stubborn and rebellious people, but please forgive our iniquity and our sins. Claim us as your own special possession. And the Lord replied, Listen, I am making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I will perform miracles that have never been performed anywhere in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power I will display for you. So in verses 6 and 7, we get an answer to the question, what kind of God would continually give us another chance? Throughout this whole series, we've been trying to figure out what does the book of Exodus teach us about our covenant God? What is the character of our God? And we get to the very end, and these two verses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, are God's own words saying, this is the kind of God that I am. These verses are so significant that these are the foundations, foundation for all of the, the, 
in thinking in Judaism about the character of God, and it's the foundation of the thinking of Christianity about the character of God. It all goes back to God speaking to Moses in these two verses, in verses 6 and 7. Let me read them again. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and grace. This is his character. I'm a God of compassion and grace. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children, which is to say that God does what is right. So if you want to know what our covenant God is like, if you want just in the words of of the creator of the universe himself, this is how we know what God is like. And so there are seven traits that are here. And I just want to kind of quickly walk through each of them. Many of these things we know, but I want to be reminded. I'd like us to be so reminded that when we start to doubt any of these things, that we return here and we say, no, I know that I know that I know that this is what my God is like because he has told me and he cannot be untrue to what he says. So number one, God is compassionate. Um, The word is, this particular word is used 13 times in the Old Testament and it always, always, always describes God. There's one instance where where it describes a follower of God who's imitating God, but the word refers to a love of God that is profound and deep. God has this, this incredible mercy for us as his creation. You never have to wonder whether God cares about you because the first component of his character is that he is a God of compassion. It doesn't matter how much you screwed up. He still cares about you incredibly. It doesn't matter how hard you are, things that you're facing or how stressed you are. You never, ever, ever, ever have to wonder because God is number one. He is a God of compassion. He always cares. And, um, and it's his first um, quality is his mercy. Number two, God is gracious. And the, this word in Hebrew um, kind of gets the image. It's, it's a word used when, when someone leans towards someone else to give them something they need. And part of the character of God is that he leans towards us. He leans into us whenever he has something to give us that we need in our life. He always leans in and inclines himself to us. Never wonder. You might face some really tough things. You might have a TIA, or you might have cancer, or you might break up with that, that, that person that you thought you were going to marry. Never doubt. God is always leaning into you, and probably he leans into us more. The greater is our need. Number three, God is slow to anger. Um, There are times when God gets angry, and we see that throughout the scriptures. His anger is almost always reserved for those who defy him and continue to defy him. We never have to, and and his anger is never wrong, okay? It is always righteous indignation. Every once in a while I come across, well, not every once in a while, I frequently come across Christians who are scared of God's anger, as if God's going to lose his temper and he's going to smack them down and destroy them in some way. That's not the God of the Bible because our God is slow to anger. 
which means that he is long-suffering. As long as we will work with him just a little bit, God will be patient with us. We never have to, which tells us God is safe. So often I hear people say, I don't want to give myself completely to God because I don't know what he's going to make me do, okay? That's not our God. Our God is always safe. We never have to be afraid that he's going to lose it and smite us in some way. Um, number four, God is filled with unfailing, um, or some translations say, abounding love. This word is probably one of the most powerful words that can be, be used for love in the scriptures. It's actually a very, very significant theological term because it's used of God so often. Here's some of what it means. It means that God is loyal. He is good towards us. He is kind. He has an ardent love a lasting loyalty, he has an unfailing devotion and affection, which means that our God, we can, we can always, always know that our God has a steadfast love. It will never fail. Never wonder whether the love of God covers you because it's in God's character. He cannot be, go against what is in his character. God has an abounding unfailing, steadfast love. Number five, but God is also filled or abounding in faithfulness. This word is a word that's used, it's a root word for truth, and here are the connotations from this. This tells us that God is trustworthy, that God doesn't change, that he is steady, he is constant, he is certain, he is stable, he is a sure foundation, he is unshifting, unchanging for all perpetuity, God has a rock-solid integrity. He's reliable. He's permanent. He's consistent. Our covenant God always does what he says he will do. Always, 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 because he's abounding in faithfulness, which means that if God has ever said something to you through his word or through his spirit, he will fulfill what he says that he will do. Number six, two more. Our covenant God is forgiving. And there's a triad, he says, he forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Um, when we mess up, and we will, God will constantly forgive if we ask him. But there's an interesting concept, the Hebrew concept of forgiveness. Um, when we think of forgiveness, we say, oh, I say I forgive you, and then you're kind of off the hook somewhere. The Hebrew concept and the word that's used here for forgiveness is a word that, that at root talks about lifting off a burden from someone and carrying it for them, which is how God forgives us. He doesn't sweep sin under the carpet and say, oh, that's okay, no big deal. He lifts off the burden that we're carrying, and God carries it for us so that we can be forgiven. In just a few moments, we'll see how Jesus does that on the cross. And then number seven, in this epic description of God's character in his own words, God says that he is completely holy. He says he, he does not just forget about sins as if it doesn't matter. And, and he even says, I punish families. I mean, a father sins, and it goes on to the son, and to the grandson, and to the great-grandson. And we partly say, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. I thought he was all loving. I thought that, that what's this now that he's going to be punishing people for sin? And can I suggest this to you? If God doesn't do what is right, we cannot trust him. If God does not punish sin, if God doesn't punish 
Um, corporations making a lot of money because by selling um, guns that can kill children in schools. If God doesn't punish sexual abuse, if God doesn't punish terrorists who are killing, um, killing their fellow Arabs weekly, if God doesn't do what's right, we cannot trust this God. Our God is wholly loving, and so we can trust him. He is also wholly holy. And only a God that is, does what's right can be trusted so that we know this. A question comes up. We wonder what's going on. If we know that God is always holy, then we know that whatever God does will be right. God always does the right thing. And this is the pronouncement of God's character. This is the kind of God who continually gives us another chance. This is our covenant God. It is the, the apex. It is the peak of everything we learn about God in the book of Exodus. And it's the foundation for everything that we believe about God as Christians. Well, it's time travel now to the first Palm Sunday when Jesus is going into Jerusalem. This is how the Gospel of John describes it. The next day, which would have been Sunday, um, Palm Sunday, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey and the colt of a donkey. So what does Exodus 34, 6 and 7 have to do with Jesus and the first Palm Sunday? Um, one commentator, I, I just love this, writing on Exodus 34, said this, Moses' glimpse of God becomes an answer to the question of the ages. Who is God and what is God like? This is a Mount Everest affirmation of who God is. It was left for Jesus to become the incarnation of these words that persons might forever believe that what God said he was, he was. The whole reason that Jesus was going into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday the whole reason Jesus walked through Holy Week and ended up at the cross was to express the character of God. Jesus came to, um, to embody who God... Jesus said, the disciples at one point, they said, said, Jesus, show us what God's like. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Colossians 1 said that, says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of God's nature. The reason Jesus was going into Jerusalem on, on Palm Sunday was to express this incredible character of God. He was going there out of his mercy and compassion for the lost. Even though he knew that he was going to Jerusalem to die, Jesus had such compassion for the lost that he went anyway. So there's, there's um, um, Luke tells us that, that at one point when Jesus was on Palm Sunday morning, he was leaving Bethany going into Jerusalem. 
and we actually think we know where exactly where it was that Jesus was when he did this because there's a point where you rise up the hill from Bethany to Jerusalem and you kind of go over the hill and there's a curve and you see the city of Jerusalem in the valley. And Luke tells us that Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem and he stopped and he wept. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, if only you knew what it would have brought you peace. Jesus is the perfect expression of the compassion of God as he wept over the city of Jerusalem. Jesus went to Jerusalem to be an expression of God's incredible grace, that God would lean towards sinful human beings and give them what they needed, what they couldn't get on their own, what they needed so that we could be friends again with God. On Holy Week, Jesus did express his anger again. We see him in righteous indignation, but then we see him on the cross. And on the cross, he says to his Father in heaven, forgive them, those who crucified him. He says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus went to the cross as proof of God's abounding, steadfast love that God would never give up on us. Jesus went to Jerusalem on the cross to express God's absolute, trustworthy faithfulness. God said he would make a way. And Jesus knew that he was that way. And Jesus was trustworthy and faithful. And Jesus went into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and he went to the cross to lift up our burdens of our sins, to carry them himself so that we would not have to carry them, so that we could be forgiven. Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And because sin had to be atoned for or else God would be unholy, Jesus did what was right. He was holy, loving, and completely holy. And he took on our sins that we might be forgiven. So let's go all the way forward now from 33 AD to this Palm Sunday. What's it have to do with us? Um, if you're here this morning, and you've never, ever put your trust in Christ, if you've never asked Jesus to forgive you and asked Jesus to be the leader of your life, can I suggest to you, what's the downside of committing your life to a God like this, to a Savior like this? There can only be an upside. There's an old, um, old hymn that I sang a lot growing up in the church. I'm curious, just curious, how many of you sang or know the, the hymn, um, Trust and Obey? Not a whole lot of you. Okay. So I sang it growing up in the church, and it goes like this. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. What's the downside of trusting this kind of God? And so if you have never asked for forgiveness for your sins, and you've never asked Jesus to be the leader of your life, this is your opportunity this Palm Sunday, this Holy Week, and it is so simple to begin a life with Jesus.
you simply say, dear Jesus, will you forgive me? I believe that you died on the cross for me. Will you forgive me? And will you become the leader of my life? And that opens a door to a completely different way of living. And if you've not gone down through that door, you don't know what it is yet, but it's only got upsides. And in a moment, um, we'll go back to Exodus 44, and I'll show you what will happen if you will do that. I encourage you, this Palm Sunday, this Holy Week, if you've not before, would you put your trust in Jesus Christ? And then that hymn goes on, verses 3 and 4. And this is for the majority of us here who are already followers of Jesus. And the hymn writer says, Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he does richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. And then verse 4. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and for the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time now. Um, today, Jesus is giving you another chance to rededicate your life to him. Maybe, you, maybe you've gotten kind of sidetracked. Maybe you've become lukewarm. Maybe there's some sin that you're struggling with. Maybe there are doubts that you're wrestling with. Maybe just things aren't going the way that you think they're supposed to go. Jesus wants to give you another chance to rededicate your life to Christ. Maybe you've been under spiritual attack and you're just feeling really weak. Jesus invites you this Palm Sunday to rededicate your life to Christ. And the one that you are rededicating or recommitting to trust and obey is one who is compassionate, who will always honor you. You never have to be afraid. It is one who loves you securely and completely. Do you realize that you don't have to measure up anymore because you're already accepted? You don't have to be perfect and you don't have to perform to get more love because you already have the steadfast love of the Lord that never fails. And then you know what? When you are trusting and obeying and putting all of your life on the altar of devotion to him, it doesn't really matter what happens. You can have a TIA, you can have cancer, you can break up, you can not get into med school or whatever grad school, you can fail a test, you can fail a class, you can fail a relationship, you can disappoint your parents. It doesn't matter what happens when you are anchored in the steadfast love of this God, of this character. You are already accepted. You are already significant. God doesn't love you because you are good. God loves you so that you will become good. His love comes first. And when we are anchored and trusting and obeying in this God, then we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Um, Exodus 34.10 closes up the passage, and it's God's response when we, his people, will trust and obey. And we read this in verse 10. The Lord replied to Moses, Listen, I'm making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I will perform miracles that have never been performed anywhere in all the earth or in any nation. 
and all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power I will display for you. When we commit to lay everything on the altar of devotion to Jesus Christ, God is able to do miracles in us and through us. God is able to pour his power in us, to transform us, to make us good, to make us holy, to make us loving, to make us wise. And God is able to pour his power into us to to face down injustice and oppression in the world. God is able to work powerfully in us for racial reconciliation. God is able to work powerfully through us to make the world a better place in Jesus' name. But we don't get there until all on the altar unite. Would you recommit to Jesus Christ this Palm Sunday and this Holy Week? In verse 8, Moses shows us what is the proper response when we see the character of our covenant God, when we see the glory of our Jesus Christ. And verse 8 simply says, Moses immediately bowed his head to the ground and worshiped. Let us then enter into this Palm Sunday worshiping our covenant God and our glorious Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I was, I was actually incredibly surprised to find your words affirming and confirming and assuring us of the kind of God you are the kind of God who continually gives us another chance and another chance. And so as your people in this place, within the little tiny part of your church, as your people, we now bow before you to worship you in the splendor of your holiness. Lord Jesus, we exalt you as the King of kings, as the king coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and as the king who will, on Good Friday, die to lift all things off so that the power of God may do miracles in us and through us. We love you and we adore you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.